Let's pray. Our dear Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would speak to us. May the words I say be faithful and true and clear. Would you help us listen? Help us to think carefully about what you're saying and help us to feel the weight of what you would have us learn. And may your Holy Spirit be at work to apply this to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think it's appropriate that we read a passage this morning about uh, a country going into national turmoil when its symbol of immovableness and stability and unity, uh, like the Jerusalem temple, all the turmoil that happens when that is thrown down. It's appropriate um, that we have a passage read about that on the week that uh, Theresa May signed the letter that would trigger uh, Article 50, the letter that would start the chain of events that will eventually see the UK leave the European Union. For us as a nation, no matter which side of the debate you're on, we are going to enter into a period of uncertainty. We are stepping into the unknown. Many of us have never even known our country to be outside of union with the nations around us. And we've never even contemplated what that might look like. So as we leave the largest and richest and most powerful union of nations in the history of the world, there are so many questions that are unanswered for us. Uh, Trade negotiations are going to start as to what sort of deal we are going to strike with the EU. What's it going to mean for our economy? Will, Will this open the door to other nations leaving the EU? Would that mean that our generation is the generation where we see the European Union disintegrate? Will this open the door to Scotland leaving the UK? Will we see the UK disintegrate? And what will this mean for so many of us here who are from other countries for visas and work permits and asylum claims? Well, in the passage that we read in Mark 13, Jesus is preparing his disciples for an unprecedented change in the political and religious landscape as he forewarns them of the destruction of the temple. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving the temple, uh, one of the disciples makes just what looks like a passing comment. You see it there in verse 1. What massive stones, what magnificent buildings. If you've ever been to the Anglican Cathedral, you'll get a sense of where the disciples are coming from. There's just something incredible and awe-inspiring, isn't there, about standing in the presence of something so enormous and majestic, yet so elegant and beautifully adorned. And Jesus uses this opportunity to tell the disciples that the inconceivable is going to happen. You see this gigantic structure, you see this thing that you're so in awe of, The thing that is so firmly established and can never be moved, Jesus says, is going to be left in ruins. So much so that you wouldn't even have known it was there. And so uh, Jesus enters into this discourse in chapter 13 where he's preparing his disciples for the chaos and instability that they're going to experience. And his central message, repeated three times in this, is to 
watch out or to be on your guard. He's not just merely warning them, though, of a physical calamity. He's telling them to watch out and be on their guard because this ground-shaking event is actually taking place in the context of a bigger picture. In verse 8, he says, this is actually going to be the beginning of birth pains. Now, to understand that bigger picture, to get a handle on what Jesus is saying in Mark 13, I want to take us back to the start of Mark chapter 12. If you've got your Bible open in front of you, you might find it helpful just to turn back one page to Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. And Jesus tells a parable of the vineyard. Here's how it goes. In the parable, a man plants a vineyard, and he rents it out to some farmers. When the time comes for the farmers to pay their rent, which is normally just a share of the produce of the vineyard, well, these farmers refuse. So far, the illustration is showing that in God's world, people owe it to God to give to him what is his. But there are those who refuse to give to God what is God's. So the vineyard owner sends his son to the people, but those wicked tenants, they reject him, they beat him, and they kill him. Jesus goes on to explain in the story that uh, the vineyard owner himself is going to come, and he's going to take the vineyard away from the wicked tenants, and he's going to give it to others. And he concludes the parable with a curious little quote from one of the Psalms. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Having rejected the wicked tenants, God is building a new people to tend his vineyard. And this new people are founded on the stone which was once rejected, but is now the cornerstone. The son of the vineyard owner, who was rejected and killed, is now the one who will come and reclaim God's vineyard, and he'll give it to those who build their lives on him. But here's where chapter 13 takes us. We find that as Jesus reclaims his vineyard, there are going to be implications. There are what he calls birth pains. Life in the vineyard that Jesus is reclaiming is going to be turbulent. And anyone who follows the rejected son, well, they can, be expect, uh, they can expect to be rejected as well. So having dropped the bombshell to his disciples that this temple is going to be utterly destroyed, Jesus goes up onto the hillside um, opposite the temple so they can look down on the temple. And he talks his disciples through what life is going to be like as followers of the rejected cornerstone, especially when he is coming and reclaiming his vineyard. And first, he teaches them, when the unshakable is shaken, watch out. For me, one of the saddest aspects of uh, seeing the, the whole um, Mediterranean refugee crisis unfold has been to see the cruel people who look to cash in on people's desperation. There are people who make hundreds of dollars a week, maybe even a day, by making and selling fake life jackets. And they're getting desperate people to queue up to spend what for some is 
their life savings just for a space on an unseaworthy vessel that's little more than a dinghy. Now for those people it's easy money. And it goes to show that when the unshakable is shaken, when your peaceful home, your stable job, your respectable government, when all of that is thrown down, and all of a sudden you find yourself running for cover in a war zone, well, you'll listen to anyone who offers hope and a way out. But that's what Jesus is warning against in the bulk of our passage this morning. You'll see in verse 7, Jesus is talking of wars and rumors of wars. Verse 8, a nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Jesus is talking of earthquakes and famines. And in verse 19, he mentions distress, unequaled from the beginning. He's warning that the world is going to see global crises. And it will even be on the doorstep of the disciples. They're not to be shaken, and they're not to be led astray. Just to clear up that confusing phrase that we find in verse 14, the abomination that causes desolation standing where it shouldn't be, that is just a phrase that's borrowed from the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. And it seems to be referring to a desecration of the temple. So somebody who comes along and uh, commits an act of sacrilege in what is supposed to be the holiest place in God's temple. Jesus pairs that with reference to those who are in Judea. So I take it the verses 14 to 20 are talking about the literal historic events that would take place in the lifetime of those disciples, um, which actually came to pass when the temple was destroyed in AD 70. And in that terrible time that lies ahead, what does Jesus think is the main danger for his disciples? Does he think that in the midst of of the turmoil and upheaval, they're going to fall away? Does he think that the main danger is that they're going to get caught up in the calamity and it will be a danger to their life? No. The main danger in the midst of of all of these earth-shattering events are the people who come along and look to cash in on the desperation that's caused by the turmoil. People who claim to be the answer to chaos and calamity in the world. A time of global chaos, says Jesus, is not the time for alarm or panic. It's not the time for speculation about the end times, but it's the time for vigilance. See then how Jesus warns his disciples in verses 5 and 6. Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. And he says a similar thing in verses 21 to 23, right at the end of our passage. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So, Be on your guard. I have told you everything in advance. Jesus is telling them everything in advance so that when the unshakable is shaken, when the inconceivable happens and the world is just crumbling down all around them, they can have complete confidence 
that this is to be expected. Complete confidence in the words of Jesus. And so they won't be led astray by looking for answers elsewhere. Watch out that you're not deceived, Jesus says. Many are going to come with claims and promises, some even bearing my name, and they're going to offer answers and offer ways out. But, says Jesus, don't let the disaster catch you so off guard that you're going to find yourself desperately taken in by the false teaching. In our nation, in our generation, where we've known such security and stability and peace and prosperity, then we need to hear Jesus' warnings. I fear that we can be like the disciples in verse 1. For us, it just seems like an economic collapse or famine or war on our own shores. Well, that's just completely unthinkable. It's, it's just unrealistic that we're going to face those challenges in our lifetime. But in fact, hasn't every era of history said that? What massive stones, what magnificent buildings, what a strong army, what an amazing palace, what a stable government, what a great alliance. But where's the Jerusalem temple now? It's lost beyond all trace, and in its place stands a mosque. Every single empire, dynasty, and superpower in world history has come and gone. So why do we think we live in a time when the inconceivable is not going to happen? Is it possible that the United Kingdom could be divided for the first time in over 300 years? Might our city streets be places that we're at risk of bombs or terrorism? Could the peaceful and happy lives that we live in our homes just come crumbling down all around us and leave us running for cover? Well, the unthinkable can happen. So be on your guard. Some of these things are happening already, and this is why we need to listen to Jesus in our era. Don't be surprised if these things happen. Don't be alarmed. It is to be expected. Because the most immovable objects, the most lasting treaties, the most powerful international unions can and will be shaken. But as for you, you need to watch out that all of this doesn't cause you to go astray. What do we mean by going astray? I mean, we might not see people explicitly coming along and saying, I am the Christ. But we can be led astray by people offering a false hope in the midst of global turmoil. See, we could be led into putting our trust in political movements or alliances to bring peace and stability. This week, whatever you've thought of Theresa May's letter, whatever you think of Brexit, if you think it brings about instability and fear for the future, or if you're excited about the prospect and think that is the way forward, I don't want us to point to the EU and say, look, here is the Messiah. Or to point to independence and say, look, there he is. That is our security. That is our answer. I want us to keep trusting that Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord and that he alone can bring peace.
It may be, though, that these false Christs are in the guise of Christ. They come in the name of Christianity. See, in the midst of our turbulent world, there are certainly people who go about in Christian clothing, not claiming to be Christ, but teaching us about a Christ that is not the one the Bible teaches. That is just as much a false Christ as anything else. Some people will teach us that disaster and strife are God's way of telling us that we are on the wrong track. Instead, we need positive thinking and we need to claim God's promises so that we can have the life we want. Just look at the world's best-selling Christian books. Their books offer false hope, hope that says it is God's will for you to live in prosperity instead of poverty. Hope that says if we say it long enough, eventually we're going to reap a harvest. We're going to get exactly what we're saying. We might be offered hope that says whatever you give to God, somehow, some way, God will make it up to you. But if you believe in a Jesus who says these things, you're believing in a Jesus that says what the opposite to the Bible says. And so you'd be believing in a false Christ. So again, when the unshakable is shaken, don't fall for the the cozy God wants you to be happy false Christ. Or the false Jesus who says that we can hide away from a world in turmoil and just live our happy life of comfort and prosperity. We've read his words in the Bible. The true Christ says, disaster and crisis is going to happen. But now you know in advance, then don't be led astray. I really don't want you to think that conflict and disaster in the world means that the gospel isn't true. On the contrary, it means that the son is reclaiming his vineyard. So, keep trusting in him, our cornerstone, who is the only lasting and firm thing in the midst of this turbulent world. Well, you might be thinking that this sounds all very doom and gloomy. Why is it, you might think, why is it that Jesus says that such things must happen? Surely he's being cruel to say that the world should be subjected to wars, And disasters and atrocities. I mean, if Jesus really was reclaiming his vineyard, couldn't he just couldn't he just call a stop to it all and bring universal peace? Well, the answer is in the next section of our passage in verse ten. Jesus says the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Look, strife is inevitable because the news of Jesus' lordship must go out to people who are rejecting it. And that's where Jesus goes with our second point this morning. When the unbreakable is broken, speak out. I read an article this week about two amazing women, Mariam Rostampour and Marzia Amirizadeh. They converted to Christianity from Islam. And they committed their lives to distributing Farsi New Testaments in the city of Tehran, in Iran. And these two women, they had an incredible ministry, distributing Bibles. They smuggled Bibles into Tehran. 
They gave them out to people, and in three years, it's thought that they distributed 20,000 New Testaments in one of the most closed and Muslim cities in the world. The thing with a ministry like theirs, though, in a culture where it's illegal to preach the gospel to Muslims, is that they always had to be quite secretive. Uh, they, uh, they were always fraught with danger. Although their ministry was fruitful, it was very, very tricky. And they had to just keep edging forward one short step at a time. Well, in March 2009, these two women were caught. They were arrested. <clears throat> they were thrown into a detention center. But here's the amazing thing. In the place where the government thought that they would be most captive, they were the most free to preach the gospel. Here's what they say in their book. Most amazing of all, we were in the best place we'd ever been for witnessing to people hungry for the gospel of Jesus. We had spent ourselves and our resources traveling all over the country with a message of salvation, always mindful of the danger if the wrong person overheard us. But now we were stuck in jail. God was bringing spiritual seekers in waves. Now, the beginning of birth pains when Jesus is reclaiming his vineyard is global upheaval. But along with global implications, there are personal implications for those who follow him. And people like these two women, people whose allegiance is to Christ, can expect to face personal persecution. But Jesus shows us in verses, 13, uh, verses 9 to 13 that this is God's plan to bring opportunities for the gospel to be preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. Having shown in verses 5 to 8 that global unrest is par for the course, Jesus goes on to explain that personal attack is also an ordinary part of being a Christian believer, a follower of the rejected cornerstone in a world which he is reclaiming. And this persecution will come from everywhere. Verse 13 says that everyone will hate you because of me. And that could involve, verse 9, being handed over to the local councils, or verse 11, being arrested and brought to trial. <clears throat> it will even come from the people you most trust to love and protect you, your family. What should be unbreakable cords of family love will become the vicious cords of the whip, as brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. <clears throat> Jesus' words 2,000 years on today are just as relevant as ever now as they ever were. Because many of you will know people from our own church who have experienced this, who've been rejected by their family. And in some cases, even quite violently. I know that some people in this very room here this morning have been arrested for being a Christian. And some have had to flee your country. Others of you, I know, have got really, really strained relationships with 
brothers or sisters or parents or children because of your faith that Jesus is the Lord. Some of you are treated by your own family members with extreme distrust. People who label you a fanatic for joining a cult. And some have been disinherited by their parents. This is painful and scary. But be encouraged by Jesus' words. He says that this is actually normal experience for a Christian believer. Because if we are building our lives on the cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected, well, we would expect to suffer the same rejection. But the encouragement that Jesus gives us here is that when the unbreakable family ties and the bonds of brotherly kindness are broken, God gives us new opportunities to speak as his witnesses, to testify to what Jesus has done for us, to share the good news that he is the Lord who is reclaiming his vineyard. Jesus is preparing his disciples for this eventuality, and he says in verse 11 that they are not to worry about what to say. Because in these circumstances, the Holy Spirit gives us help. Isn't that an amazing part of God's plan to get the gospel to all nations? That he turns personal attacks on Christians into spirit-given opportunities to spread the news of his son. That is exactly what we saw in the, the story of those two Iranian women, Mariam and Marzia. They gave themselves fully to serving the Lord Jesus, and that landed them in trouble. But through the trouble that they were in, God opened a new door to spread the gospel beyond what they could imagine. So I want to encourage you this morning, when the unbreakable is broken, speak out. Don't be anxious about speaking for Jesus in a world that rejects him, but use the opportunities you're given. Use the opportunities that persecution brings to talk to people about the good news of the gospel. Even when the cost of following Jesus becomes very personal, he says in verse 13, stand firm to the end. And the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Let's not forget that last bit there in verse 13. See, while Jesus is calling us to watch out, we should be on our guard, we should speak to him, and we should endure. He, he's going about his business of saving. See, the, the trouble that's about to come for the, the disciples, that's bad news. But the message that they're speaking is good news. The turmoil in the world is birth pains, but birth pains always bring about a birth, a new life. And Jesus, being Lord of the vineyard, is good news that one day will lead to a day where there is new birth, new life, where he is completely ruling his vineyard. But you see, Jesus isn't reclaiming his vineyard by force, but by mercy. He's reclaiming it by offering to more and more people the opportunity to come and be part of God's people. To come and be built on the rejected cornerstone, who will eventually become the headstone, the most important stone. And those built on him will be given the vineyard. And Jesus calls his disciples to embody that good news. 
Notice how he describes what's going to happen to them in verse 9. He says, You'll be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Now think about this. that When Jesus said the words local councils, the disciples would hear that and they would think of the Jewish Sanhedrin. When he said governors, they would think about the man who is governor at the moment, the man called Pontius Pilate. When he said kings, they would think about the man who is the king, King Herod. And when we realize that, we see that this is a really, really poignant warning from Jesus because within a week of the conversation he had here, one of his closest brothers would betray him over to the local council, the Sanhedrin. He himself would stand trial before the governor, Pontius Pilate. And he would stand trial before the king, King Herod. And he would be flogged. And he would eventually be crucified. But he endured to the end. But he endured to the end not so that he would be saved, but so that he would die. So that we would be saved. So these words of Jesus we have, they're not just forewarning the disciples of what lies ahead. But he is describing a pattern of how they are going to embody and spread the good news that Jesus is the Lord of the vineyard who was rejected handed over, flogged and killed, but whose death has made it possible for those who trust in him to be part of his new people to whom God will give the vineyard. So I don't want you to be discouraged by the forewarnings in this passage this morning. Don't be discouraged about global turmoil and personal persecution. I want you to be encouraged that all of this is evidence that Jesus is reclaiming his vineyard, as more and more people hear the message of Jesus' rejection and death, and they put their trust in him. Don't be discouraged, but do, do listen to the warnings. Do be prepared, and do be on your guard. When the unshakable is shaken, don't be alarmed, but watch out. And when the unbreakable is broken, don't be anxious, but speak out. Because in the midst of all this trouble, you can have confidence that your feet are firmly set on the unshakable, unbreakable cornerstone who is reclaiming his vineyard. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have told us all things in advance. That you have told us that life as your followers in your vineyard is not going to be easy. You have warned us that there is going to be global turmoil and personal persecution. We thank you that you have told us all things in advance so that you can prepare us to be on our guard. And we ask for your help to do that. Lord, give us discernment to be able to reject false teaching, to reject false hopes, to reject false pictures of the Messiah 
Help us to have our trust firmly in the Lord Jesus. And help us to be ready to speak out when things come close to home. To be ready to speak in the power of the Spirit. And as you have told the disciples in this passage, so we pray that you would uh, give us that promise that when we are in trouble for being a Christian, you would give us words to say that we might be able to spread your gospel. Give us boldness and confidence, we pray. And keep us trusting in the Christ who is reclaiming the world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.